I spent the last 10 years teaching corporate America leadership and teamwork. Now, I've left my 9 to 5 job to help as many people as possible become leaders in their work and personal lives. Some say leaders are born, but I say they're built. This podcast is the beginning of my mission to create change on a massive scale. Join me and follow along as we explore leadership, teamwork, and growth together. My name is Brian Rollo, and this is Lead with Impact. Hey there, and welcome to the Lead with Impact podcast. This is Brian, and I am really excited to have you with me today. We have a very, very special guest. We will be chatting with Megan Bruno. Megan is a New York City-based therapist, executive coach, storyteller, host of The Failure Factor, social media influencer, and all-around thought leader when it comes to meeting life's challenges, dealing with difficult emotions, and achieving great things. Megan has been all over the media. You might have seen her on Good Morning America, the Huffington Post, or all sorts of other outlets. So I am super excited to have her here with me on the Lead with Impact podcast. I first met Megan at a conference last year, as I think we'll talk about, and we had this really deep conversation within a couple of minutes. So I was so excited when she agreed to come back and talk with me here. So, without any wait, let's get right to it and meet Megan Bruno. Welcome to the Lead with Impact podcast. We are very fortunate to be joined today by Megan Bruno, therapist, executive coach, writer, and speaker. Thank you so much for being with us, Megan. Thanks for having me, Brian. I'm really excited to talk to you. Uh, We were just speaking before we started recording that we met at a conference last year, and I was really fascinated by talking to you there about what you do. And so I'm very happy that you're going to come and continue that conversation with me and also our audience. So thank you. Of course. It's, It's a pleasure to be here. So maybe we can start by you telling us exactly what you do to help people. I said a lot of things in the intro, so you could expand on any or all of that. Just tell us what you do to help people. Sure. Well, I mean, I guess like all of those are just different avenues that I I use to help people gain self-awareness really. And, and, um, everything's quite mental health related. I mean, I think whether it's, as it relates to our relationships, social or romantic or our careers or, you know, our relationships to ourselves. Um, there are a lot of similarities there. And I essentially help people just become more aware of the places that they're actually causing suffering in their lives uh, by numbing or avoiding or suppressing uh, difficult emotions. And so essentially what I do, and I imagine we'll get more into it and it will make more sense, but I help people um become more emotionally intelligent, become more self-compassionate or self-loving and learn how to respond to their inevitable emotional discomfort that life throws their way in a more productive uh, way so that they can act from a place of like intentionality and desire versus fear and reactivity. There's a lot to unwrap there. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So 
are you telling me that you find that the root of the problems that a lot of us have or the hurdles that we would like to overcome really can be traced back to mental health? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, we, um, we're very simple beings at, at the baseline. I mean, we, this is sort of a Buddhist perspective, but like we seek pleasure and avoid pain, right? And so much of what we do is unconscious and, you know, automatic, and we get caught in certain patterns and um, try to avoid discomfort by, you know, numbing or avoiding certain situations that might make us feel uncomfortable. And this is all compounded by a society that really pathologizes the human emotional experience. So what I mean by that is a lot of the stuff in the self-help world is very focused on like being positive and being grateful and being confident and, you know, um, being fearless and stuff like that. And I, I kind of, um, push back against that mentality and say, well, no, I mean, to be human is to have emotions or to have emotions is to be human. I mean, we cannot, as long as we're alive, we're going to have difficult emotions and perfectionism, which is sort of the, the, um, overarching umbrella that I specialize in, which manifests in ways like depression, anxiety, addictions, eating disorders, procrastination, avoidance, stagnancy, all that kind of stuff. Um, perfectionism is kind of this like belief that, or a, a way of living one's life that avoids discomfort and believes, okay, well, as long as I do all of these things and try to kind of be perfect and look perfect and act perfectly, I can protect myself from pain. And it's a really like, anxiety provoking way to live one's life and it keeps us in a box. And so what I help people do instead is, is not try to avoid pain, but to learn how to become resilient to it. And the way that I do that is help people learn something called, you know, emotional intolerance and and self-compassion and being able to respond to their difficult emotions in a way that they feel equipped to handle them rather than, you know, going to these reactive places where they like numb or, you know, go to some sort of substance or, avoid doing the thing that scares them because there's a vulnerability to feeling rejection or shame or guilt or embarrassment or anxiety or loneliness or hurt or sadness or whatever. Um, so, you know, this, uh, this plays out in, in the counseling or therapy room. It plays out in, in coaching, you know, it's a lot of crossover between the two of those. Um, you know, obviously you can see it in threads of like my writing and speaking, but at the end of the day, uh, I, I think that, you know, those of us who have the luxury of being able to gain self-awareness, um, through learning more how we react and and move about life unconsciously and starting to wake up to that so that we move with more intention, we can achieve like the connection and the meaning and the fulfillment and also just like the present mindedness that we crave or that we, we um, will be more likely to be conducive to a like fulfilling, joyful life. You said something in the middle there. I'd like to react to all of that, but there's one part in the middle where you said you tend to focus on perfectionism. And I can see where that can lead to a lot of other problems because when you're trying to be perfect all the time, it's sort of like there's a fuse burning that's going to run out eventually. Is that a good way to look at it? Totally. I mean, perfectionism is 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 unsustainable. It's exhausting and and really like because nothing's ever good enough for it's only good enough for like a fleeting moment. It's also like a, an exhausting, demoralizing way of living one's life. And so it's it, people tend to feel quite depressed and anxious because they're either you know they're never feeling good enough, and then they're also kind of constantly on guard. 
um, and hypervigilant as to when the next time is that they might not meet expectations and, and get beaten up by their critical inner voice or feel shame. And so it, it really does not lead to much joy. It, it creates a lot of discomfort and, and chronic um, emotional pain as opposed to the more like impermanent or passing or acute emotional pain that, you know, we, we ought to just learn how to deal with on a daily basis. But, um, you know, the way I describe perfectionism, I think a lot of people think it is about having things at like all right angles or being really clean or something like that. And the way I, I describe it is, is sort of four main traits. Uh, it's, you know, these unrealistically high inflexible expectations, it's self-worth that's dependent on outcomes and achievements. It's, uh, a discomfort or like an inability to be with strong emotions, which most of us have to a certain extent. Um, and then it's a, it's a critical inner voice, which kind of like, they all perpetuate each other. I mean, if you think about it, like if our response to an uncomfortable emotion is beating ourselves up or a response to, um, you know, not meeting our unrealistic, if, if, you know, we have unrealistically high expectations, we're more likely to not meet them and then beat ourselves up or feel a strong emotion and not be able to be with a strong emotion. So they all kind of like impact each other. And then again, because self-worth is dependent on these outcomes, achievements, appearance, it's a really like roller coaster cycle and just a very fragile, um, painful way of relating to oneself and to the world where we just are always on edge and kind of just never feel good enough and can't be present and deal with like a lot of shame. Interesting. So maybe I can make a Grand Canyon size leap over to social media because as I hear you talk about perfectionism, it makes me think of maybe the role that social media plays in the fact that most people just tend to broadcast the highlights of their life and set a really high bar for someone who's observing and not really being intentional about thinking about all of the parts of that person's life that they're not seeing. Yeah, totally. No, and that feels like a Grand Canyon zip line. It's very relevant. Um, yeah, it, it's, it, I mean, a big part of the work that I do with people is, um, helping them realize how these like unrealistically high expectations that they have for themselves are oftentimes embedded in the larger social narrative. So, it, you know, through, traditional media, but now of course, social media is really like the dominant media that we're consuming. But through the, the cultural narratives in our society, there are these unrealistic expectations on all of us, right? Like, not only do we all expect that we're supposed to be, um, you know, even like, I mean, there are, of course, more expectations on women with regards to appearance and whatnot, but men certainly experience them as well. And whether it's with regards to like your experience, your career, your relationship status, your bank account, you know, um, you know, your education, your how many friends you have, how social you are. And in the wellness world, it's like, you know, how much how much sleep you get, how much green juice you drink, like um, how much you're working out. Like there, there's just there's so many unrealistic expectations out there uh, that suggest that we're we're, as I say, humaning wrong. We're doing life wrong. And as a result, I mean, the immediate emotion people feel when they compare themselves to this, um, the ideal, what they perceive to be the ideal of how they're supposed to live their life is they feel shame and they feel like they're not good enough. And so part of working with perfectionism or really, you know, any matter, um, I think when one is trying to learn how to embrace imperfection and, and accept and love one's imperfect self, um, a big part of that is is deconstructing those those dominant narratives and recognizing, you know, the fairy tales that we grew up with, the Disney movies we saw, you know, the rom-coms, the, the celebrities, you know, actually in some ways, sometimes celebrities like can model imperfection. But um, 
But, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there that we're surrounded by that makes us believe that we are flawed, you know, fundamentally flawed and therefore unlovable and unworthy. And what I help people try to do is like poke holes in that and recognize that like, no, that is not the truth. That's not an accurate representation of reality. The one thing that really unifies us as as humans is our collective imperfection and, um, you know, and not just and not just imperfection, like in all those ways that I just mentioned there, but also and this relates very much to, you know, the work that I do in, in um, self-compassion and in bringing spirituality into the counseling room, uh, helping people realize that like life is also imperfect. Our feelings are also imperfect. You know, sadness and loneliness and rejection and hurt and embarrassment and guilt and shame and humiliation and disappointment and frustration and anger and like betrayal and all of these sorts of hard things that we experience. I mean, that's just part of being human. You know, that's just part of our our journey in this life. And so many people feel resentment because they're like, I've been dealt such a shitty hand. Like, you know, God is out to get me. And in many cases, like, of course, I mean, I want to acknowledge I have a ton of privileges, like, you know, a white, able-bodied, you know, cisgender, straight, highly educated, you know, thin privileged woman, the list goes on, right? And so there, of course, is a very real um, unfair privilege piece. And all that said, um, you know, there are many circumstances in which people might be experiencing something that's a hard thing that they're going through. And my intent is not to invalidate what they're going through. I don't think you can quantify suffering, but there's also like from, from a a Buddhist perspective, you know, the first noble truth is that like, you know, life is painful basically, or life is suffering, however you want to interpret it, but there is pain in life. And rather than us feeling resentful or trying to fight that pain, what we need to learn to do is, is learn how to like work with that pain and respond to it in the healthiest way possible and find meaning in it and integrate it. And, you know, you, it to our advantage in some way. So, um, so just coming back to the social media piece, yes, it's very much like we're surrounded by these unrealistic ideals, whether it comes to like appearance or how our life should look. And then also like how, um, you know, how, uh, challenging life should be, you know, there's this sort of expectation that it's supposed to be super easeful and, you know, you're not supposed to go through things and like, no, no, there's something called post-traumatic growth. And like, we become more resilient as a result of like going through challenges. Um, so in some ways, you know, you wouldn't want to live a life without any challenge because you probably wouldn't have much depth or awareness. I have followed you on Instagram since we met. And I have to say that I've been very impressed with the fact that to my standpoint, again, correct me if maybe I'm perceiving this incorrectly, you do sometimes put out there, hey, I'm not having the greatest day, or I had a tough week, or I had this challenge or another challenge. And is that an intentional act or an intentional way to put that forward? Yeah, I mean, I think like there's just so much out there that is, is, doesn't make people feel good, you know, like, like, it doesn't, it doesn't always make me feel good to see you know, people like having the best time. I mean, no, and look, like I try, I think to be very, um, I I think it's hard for anyone to accurately represent their life in like a grid on social media. And I try my best to show like for me, and, and this is very, um, representative of my life. I mean, there's a lot of joy and a lot of pain, you know, there's, there's both and there's room for both. There's room for all sorts of emotions. And yeah, like I have some very real, you know, challenges in my family and, and, you know, I'm sort of perpetually single in, in New York city and dealing with the, the heartache after heartache or heartbreak after heartache right there. And, you know, being an entrepreneur isn't easy and there are a lot of like challenges and whatnot there. And, and, um, you know, just as we say, sort of like the trauma of everyday life. And then also I'm like, you know, deeply, um, 
grateful and privileged and, you know, healthy and live in like the most amazing city in the world and have incredible friends and, you know, have the enough, um, you know, financial freedom or also freedom being able to work remotely that I can travel. And so like, I just try to accurately show that I have like that there's room for all of that because that's part of my message, my, my message. And again, it's not really like my message. This is just like the spiritual or the Buddhist message is like, you know, there's like, there's pleasure and pain in life. There's, there's, and, and like, I don't think it serves anyone to try to get to a place of enduring eternal happiness because one, I, I mean, I don't think that's possible unless you kind of reframe happiness as like contentedness or contentment and under that contentment or within that contentment, there's room for pain. Um, but you know, I also just, I want people to feel, um, I want people to feel less alone in, in their struggles. I mean, I think it's so isolating when we look at social media and we think, wow, everyone else is traveling with like their partner and, you know, has not a, worry in the world and isn't dealing with stuff. Right. And, and for me, I'm, I'm so lucky being a therapist because I have a window into so many people's suffering, like a really intimate window where I'm reminded every day, like, no, I mean, everyone is dealing with stuff, you know, and it's, and life is, is very challenging at times for everyone. And again, no one is exempt from that. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how much success you have. It doesn't matter how thin you are. It doesn't matter how connected you are. And perfectionism will tell you, oh, well, you know what? All you have to do is just like get that promotion or you just have to exit your company or you just have to lose 10 pounds or you just have to get into a relationship and then you will be free of pain. And that's kind of the promise that it sells. And, And that's not the case. I mean, none of those things are insurance against difficult emotions. So what I try to model in addition to just like a, a you know, I don't want to say like a normal life, but I like, you know, humanness, what I try to model in addition to that is like, I'm a, like deeply grateful, like happy, um, connected, like soulful individual. And I like love myself and I am really proud of myself and I'm, I have incredible supports and also like I have painful things, you know, like it, it, it's, it's not like an either, or I, I try to just like re, um, I just think in the self-help world, there's a lot of really destructive stuff around like this. It, it almost becomes like the, you know, the diet industry in a way. It's like, you know, you're wrong for not being happy all the time. Or, you know, you need to like, like attach to this idea of, of being the most, the most personally developed individual out there. And, um, you know, there's something called, I don't know if you're familiar with the affirm, um, excuse me, the term spiritual materialism. But spiritual materialism is basically like attaching ego to spirituality and measuring or, or trying to sort of like inflate or attach to one's ego um, through becoming like the most spiritual person out there. And I think we can do that with self-help a bit. Like it's like, let me do another weekend away. You know, let me do, read another book. Let me take another course. And, you know, I, I think at the baseline, it's all pretty simple. It's really just about learning how to like be more present and be more compassionate to ourselves and others and be more comfortable with life's discomforts. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that. I see some of the same things. And do you think part of it might be that one successful, say, self-help coach or writer or speaker sets an idea and whatever that idea goes out there and gains some traction and then the next person comes along and thinks the way they have to be, beat that person is to take it even to the next level of extremism and sort of build on it like that. I think that, to me... I think that's how we get to some of the really extreme ideas where we seem to lose a little bit of common sense. Yeah. I mean, I think like 
there's a lot like whether it's the self-help industry or the wellness industry or spirituality um many of us are, are brought to this i've said this before but like we're brought to this because we're suffering right like we become interested in personal growth and personal development or self-help or whatever because we're in pain. And so there's kind of a selection bias there. And so by nature of the industry, you know, you have a lot of people who, on the one hand, like, you know, maybe really know suffering and are deeply compassionate because they've been there and are really like credible in the work that they're doing. And on the other hand, um, you know, you often have people who maybe haven't done enough of the work to, um, to do what they're doing in, a, in, in my opinion, you know, in the most compassionate way possible or in the least harmful way possible. And there's still a lot of fear there and a lot of ego there. And it's such a big industry that, you know, it's, it's easy for someone to say, well, look, like I'm a guru, I know everything. And, you know, here's my way of doing it. And it's the best way. And then because there's so many vulnerable people who look towards something like self-help and look for a guru who has all the answers and just want, they want an answer. They don't want to do the, you know, the, the hard route in my opinion or route in my opinion. So I'm Canadian. Um, the hard route is, is being like, look, I just have to accept that I'm going to experience pain in life for me. You know, like, I have to accept that there will probably be many more heartbreaks that, you know, I may never have the connection and the validation or the retribution or whatever in my family that I I wish I could have, you know, I will never have a connection with certain people. Like, um, you know, I may never, whatever, like I have to just like accept certain things and that will be painful and there may be grief there and there may always be grief there. And also like, that's part of being human. And that's a much more painful unsexy, disappointing way of relating to the world than a shiny self-help book that says like, you know, never be sad again and, you know, mm-hmm. make everything perfect. Right. And so a lot of this is marketing. I mean, if, if, if someone isn't, if someone doesn't recognize like the ultimate truth, which is, you know, we will, we will have pain until the day we die and we can't be exempt from that unless we're, you know, high all the time. And that causes all sorts of other pain. Um, and so, like, you know, if, if we're not ready to accept that truth, of course, we're going to go for like the quick fix. You know, of course, we're going to go for the thing that's like, well, no, I can sell you this. Just give me, you know, $5,000 for a coaching session or whatever. Or just, you know, buy this book or do this program and, you know, your life will be infinitely better. And look, like, I mean, I think there is a lot of benefit in some of these programs and things. I don't think they're all, all bad, these books and programs, but I think everyone's looking for a silver bullet. Everyone's looking to stop their pain. And you know, coming back to your question around like people wanting to kind of outdo each other. I do think even within self-help, you know, gurus or authorities, unfortunately, there's still like a ton of ego and, um, and, and perfectionism and like seeking outside of themselves. And so a lot of these, you know, people who are authorities are looking for validation and, um, success as a way of, finding peace with their own like shame and dissatisfaction rather than like coming at it from a more egoless place. And from your standpoint, as someone who is an actual therapist and not a pretend therapist or or a pretend expert on psychology, it must be even more sometimes frustrating to see advice come from anywhere and everywhere and much of it not legitimate. Yeah, it's, it is. I mean, it's look like I will say I've been humbled. I mean, when I first, you know, I, I, 
let's see, I've, I mean, I started my master's in 2008. So it's been like, you know, more than a decade that I've been, I've been doing clinical work. And when I first, you know, kind of was fresh in the field, I was a lot more like, um, judgmental, I guess I would say of people who didn't necessarily have the the same type of credentials as, as I did. And I do think there's still like a lot of harm that gets done because, you know, people get like the cereal box certificate and then start deciding that they know how to work with trauma or something like that. Um, and, and at the same time, I've also like worked with healers and know a lot of people in the, in the, this world who have zero education or credential and are like incredible at what they do. And so I think, I think part of it is, is helping people become more discerning consumers. Like I think, you know, marketing can be incredibly manipulative and there's like a whole ethical piece around that. And, you know, the ethics of marketing as a self-help professional, but I also think like as the, the, the world needs to be more educated um, because yeah, like you, you, it, it's like even within those of us who are licensed, you know, and, and have the quote unquote credentials um, you know, there's, there's not a lot of consistency and, um, you know, there are still, uh, there's still like a lot of harm that gets done. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it is frustrating to see. And at the same time, I also, um, I think just like that we need to take more responsibility in the public and have more of these kinds of conversations so that people feel like they're, um, they're making decisions as to who they want to work with and where they want to invest their money from like a really informed place. You mentioned earlier that you help people really deal with these emotions and get through it and realize that there's going to be pain and, and still keep moving forward. Are there ways that you can share with our listeners to do that? Yeah, of course. I mean, so the, the main thing I focus on is something called self-compassion. And that's, uh, you know, that sort of comes back to um, Kristen Neff and, and Paul Gilbert are kind of the, the parents of that that term or that concept. And it embodies three things It embodies something called mindfulness, uh, self-kindness and something we call common humanity. Um, but even like, you know, higher level than that um, or less abstract than that, it's really just like changing the way that we respond to ourselves internally. So um, something that most of us do is we feel a difficult emotion and we may not even be aware of it. Like we may not even know that what we're feeling is loneliness or shame or hurt or sadness or disappointment or guilt or anxiety or whatever, right? A lot of this happens in it. I mean, it happens in our body. And because so many of us, especially with perfectionism, we're very turned off from our bodies. And so we kind of are all in our heads and we may not even have like the lexicon to be able to describe what it is that we're feeling. And so we can't even identify what our experience is. And so all we think is like, Ooh, discomfort. Um, I better, you know, either try to numb this in some way, whether it be through some sort of like substance of, you know, food or alcohol or drugs or, or sex or, you know, work, or, um, in some cases it's like, I mean, it, oftentimes we talk about like things like exercise being healthy, but you know, it can also be unhealthy. I think no coping mechanism inherently is, is healthy or unhealthy. It's really about how we use it. But anyway, and we, we start using things to numb, we use our phones, whatever. Um, and we don't know how to be with our discomfort. So we either do that, we numb or we avoid the experience. So let's say like to give you an example that might be relevant to people who are wanting to like, you know, advance their careers or become better leaders. Um, you know, giving and receiving feedback or like, you know, pitching an investor or, um, you know, doing a, a public speaking gig or something like that. 
all of those things very understandably can be quite uncomfortable. You know, they can have anxiety uh, wrapped up in them. They can have shame wrapped up in them, depending on, you know, our, our history or childhood and history and stuff like that with uh, putting ourselves in those vulnerable positions or having attention on us and stuff like that. Um, and so if we aren't conscious of what those emotions are that we're feeling and why, we're just going to think, well, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to speak publicly. I don't want to pitch investors. You know, I don't want to, I'm not going to put myself in a position where I, I receive feedback from, you know, my employees, or I'm not going to give feedback to them because, you know, I don't want, I don't want to make them uncomfortable or I feel guilty or whatever. And so we avoid doing things that are necessary for our success or, or, you know, would probably be conducive to our success because we don't want to feel discomfort. So, what I help people do is first of all, start to wake up to what it is that they're actually avoiding. So that's kind of the first step is not only becoming aware of what's happening in their body, but then also like being able to even name that. And that takes time for people, like, especially for a man, if you grew up in a situation where um, you were told like big boys don't cry and, you know, you were never really taught words for what you were feeling, people become very frustrated because they feel something, they know they're feeling discomfort, but they don't know what it is. They're like, I don't, I just feel bad. I don't know what, I don't know if this is anxiety or shame or guilt or loneliness, you know? And so, so the first step is actually just becoming more in touch with like, what is that experience that you're having? What is it saying to you? And, and that's what we do in the therapy room is kind of deepen that and help them understand. But the next kind of really game changing step for people is what most people tend to do when they become aware that they're feeling something uncomfortable. If they get so far as to even become aware of what they're feeling and they're not like numbing or avoiding it, then they tend to criticize or judge themselves for it. So they criticize or judge themselves for like whatever, you know, the behavior is where they believe they didn't meet expectations, but they also might be like, like as an example, a dating example, I mean, that's always so relevant in my life, but like, you know, it's like get rejected or go through a breakup and, you know, it's like we, oh, oh gosh, like, you know, why are you have no, don't be sad about it. They weren't worth you. They didn't deserve you. You know, they weren't worth your time. Like, you know, we go through, we say all these things, like why they're not worth your tears. It was only a couple of weeks or months or whatever. Um, and so we, we try to like minimize or push away the emotion. And, and one of my favorite Buddhist sayings is pain time struggle equals suffering. So we feel the pain of rejection or we feel the pain of, we'll say like loneliness or anxiety or sadness. And then because again, we live in this like emotionally pathologizing culture where we're supposed to always be positive and grateful, we then judge ourselves for it. And we strut that the, the pain is the emotion. The struggle is saying something like, don't feel that, or like, you know, you're being weak, or just think positively, or there are children starving in Africa, this isn't that big of a deal. And so through that struggle, or that pushing against that emotion and trying not to feel it, we actually create suffering and we create what we call secondary emotions. And our secondary emotions are ones that are responses to our judgment for, you know, the original or primary emotion I just mentioned. So that might be, okay, well now I'm not only feeling rejected because, you know, this guy I've been seeing for the last few months, you know, doesn't want to date me seriously or whatever. Um, but now that I've been judging myself for feeling sad or rejected, I'm also now feeling ashamed because I'm now telling myself that I'm so weak and why am I so sensitive and why can't I just get over it? Or, you know, let's say I was feeling anxious and then I started beating myself up for feeling anxious and was like, don't feel anxious. You know, you need to be stronger and you need to have it together and you need to be confident. You talk about confidence, like what's wrong with you. Then I'm also feeling anxiety for feeling anxiety or shame for feeling anxiety. So the next step, like after actually identifying what the emotion is, 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 mindfulness, which is really just giving ourselves permission to feel that feeling and look at it from like a very non-judgmental kind of curious perspective where it's like, okay, I'm having this emotional experience right now. It's impermanent, which means it's, it's passing. It'll come and go. 
it's natural. Of course, it would make sense that I would feel this way right now, given the circumstances. Um, And so instead of judging ourselves for our emotion, we actually like take a moment and make space for it. And that actually counterintuitively makes us less emotional. It's when we try to push away our emotions that we become more reactive and we like, you know, get angry or we, we, um, you know, try to numb or we respond in a way that's not serving for us. So the first step there is like, okay, make space for the emotion, respond to yourself. That that's the mindfulness piece, respond to yourself in a way that you would to like a friend or a loved one. So many of us are so hard on ourselves. We would never say what we say to ourselves to someone else where we wouldn't have friends. And so it's saying something like, as I said there, my favorite thing to do is just go like, I start every sentence with, it's understandable I'm feeling blank because. So Megan, like, it's understandable you're feeling sad because, you know, you're really disappointed that this relationship didn't work out or whatever. Or it's understandable you're feeling anxious because, you know, you're speaking on a stage in front of a lot of people and it's not something you've done a ton of and it's uncomfortable. And, you know, you think that they, you know, you you, you want to do well. Your anxiety is a sign of your integrity and wanting to perform, et cetera, et cetera. So like, Responding to ourselves again is in a way that we would with like our friends or loved ones. And the final piece, this common humanity is recognizing like that, you know, this experience you're having, whether it's loneliness or rejection or frustration, et cetera. Again, it's part of the human experience. It's part of just like our walk in this life. There are millions of other people out there probably in this very moment who are experiencing something similar and you are not alone in this. And it does not mean that you are broken or flawed or bad or not woke enough or whatever. It actually just means you're human. And it's kind of just part of, you know, our, uh, you know, ticket to being here or whatever. So it's, it's the whole process allows us to change our relationship to that difficult emotion and have like the resilience to be with it long enough to then recognize, okay, where do I want to go from here? Now, what do I need? Do I need to connect to a friend, you know, or loved one and like get some support from them? Do I need to go take like a few moments in the bathroom and kind of like psych myself up? Do I need to, um, you know, go get a massage or have some sort of like self-care coping mechanism? Do I need to like just sit on the floor and cry for a little bit and listen to some acoustic covers? Like what do I need in this moment that is going to be most serving for me? Because that's how we can cope intentionally versus, um, what we do when we don't go through this process and we numb and we go to these coping mechanisms or habits that aren't helpful, or we go back to the source or we keep doing the same thing over and over again, because we don't have the strength or the resilience to sit with the discomfort long enough to do something different. So I realized I just talked for like a very long time. Did that make sense? Do you have any questions? Perfect sense. It's phenomenal. (laughs) Okay, good, good. (laughs) Um, And I've heard, I've heard it said, um, so I don't want to dovetail on that and also something that you touched on briefly before. So uh, from a male perspective, do you find that more males are opening up to the idea of therapy and is there a need there? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. I mean, look, there is, um, as we say, like a mental health crisis, especially in men's mental health. I mean, suicide rates are very high in men. And, you know, it's something that is not really talked about. Substance use um, uh, rates are also very high. And, you know, the inference there is that, you know, men are using uh, substances to basically numb like their depression and stuff like that. Men are not as socialized to be relational and emotional right so whereas like women are are more socialized to like have a lot of girlfriends and talk about our feelings and whatnot 
men are taught that that makes them weak, you know, or that it's not manly. And this is like, gosh, I mean, we could talk about this forever. And I know we won't be able to today. But I mean, this is where like, this is toxic masculinity. And I just am so saddened by everything that happened earlier this year with that Gillette commercial and like toxic masculinity conversation, because I think we totally lost the plot. Like toxic masculinity is so harmful for men. It's not, I mean, you know, women is a completely different conversation or other genders are, is a different conversation, but men are impacted by toxic masculinity in the sense that the unrealistic expectation that they're supposed to always be these strong, like Viking fighters who never feel emotions it causes so much shame and disconnection and pain in their experiences. So yes, there's absolutely such a need for therapy for men. Um, I, uh, again, sort of selection bias, you know, being in New York in like a more spiritual wellness community, there certainly are a lot more men that I will see who are like open to therapy and open to having more like intimate, vulnerable conversations. But that's by no means is that the majority, right? Like the majority is still you know, informed by this, uh, very masculine ideal that, um, creates a lot of judgment for feeling anything that's not like happiness or anger, basically. I mean, anger, and and, then, you know, this is also destructive, you know, anger is a more permissible emotion for a man, you know, unless you grew up in a home in which like it really wasn't, but like for most men, it's like, that's, that's okay. If you're angry, you're fighting back. But a lot of the time, Anger is a sublimation, especially in men, anger is a sublimation of a more uncomfortable feeling like loneliness or shame or hurt or something like that. And so we have a lot of like violence and reactivity and abuse and whatnot that occurs because men are not socialized to feel their feelings, Um, which, again, I recognize is a very like, you know, that's a, a broad strokes statement. Obviously, there's a lot more contributing factors to things like abuse and whatnot. But I do believe that the lack of emotional intelligence and the lack of emotional um, permission uh, within men is like at the root of so much pain, both within the individual and then within our society as a result of, of all of that. So, so yes, I mean, more men are going to therapy, but like that's not enough <laughs> are. Um, and that's not just because of them. That's also like the system, unfortunately, makes it so that most people can't afford therapy and can't access it. And there still is a stigma around it. And, you know, oftentimes it, it, it isn't until someone's like in a really, really um, desperate place that they start seeking help. And, and that's just super unfortunate. So I, I would love to see people just feeling more connected in their communities and, um, you know, having more of these types of conversations, whether it be with a professional or not. Like there are more men's groups and stuff I'm hearing about and like um, more conversations around uh um, emotional intelligence and, and, you know, connectedness and breaking down some of these toxic masculinity, um, ideals, but it's, I think we still have a long way to go. Thank you for sharing that. I think you're right that it's a huge topic. We probably could do another hour on that, but we're going to move on to another topic. Yeah. We'll talk, talk more about mental health uh, as uh, another day, but I'd like to ask you about your journey. Typically I do this at the beginning of the show, but we jumped right into it. So I think you mentioned you were Canadian, which I did not know. So how did you end up here in New York City doing all these things that you do? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a good story, but it's a long story. So I'll try to be as succinct as possible, which you've probably mm-hmm. realized by now is not my forte. Um, That's okay. But um, yeah, I, so I was working as a therapist um, in Vancouver, British Columbia, and uh, that... Um, 
you know, I, I was one of those very like sort of lucky, rare people who knew exactly what I wanted to do from a really young age. So I kind of powered through like seven years of education, like right away, right out of high school and, you know, got my master's in psychology and began like working as a therapist, like quite quickly afterwards. And so I, uh, but during that time, you know, I, I, like many therapists, I went into therapy because I was suffering myself. I struggled with eating disorders for many years and depression and anxiety. And, um, you know, ironically, it was when I was finishing my master's that I hit my rock bottom with, with anorexia and depression and, you know, went through a massive heartbreak and found spirituality and found yoga and started to really like integrate some of these ideas that I'd, I'd learned about somewhat um, you know, in my education, but they weren't so relevant as they, as they, until they became so relevant to my healing. And so for me, um, you know, years after that, I was working at a college in British Columbia or in Vancouver, and I was helping people overcome their perfectionism and, you know, do things that scared them and whatnot. But I felt somewhat hypocritical because I was like, I mean, I'm in this like really amazing job where I have like eight and a half weeks vacation and I get off at four 30 and I go and play soccer three times a week and I live with my boyfriend and I go to Whistler on the weekends and like I'm in the most livable city in the world or one of the most livable cities in the world. And I just, I kind of knew, or I, I wanted to have more of an impact. Like I saw, I saw the themes in the counseling room day after day and all of these people who were just thought they were broken. And, and I saw how the mental health system, um, or the mental health narrative out there is really like pathologizing and centers the problem within the individual. And I was like, it's not, that's not, I think we're kind of off here. I mean, it's not that I don't believe in mental illness, but I really think that most of what we define as quote unquote mental illness is just like the natural human reaction to a really like messed up system that we're living in right now. And people are just deeply disconnected and they're lacking meaning and, you know, they're not nourished and they're not moving and they're not getting enough sleep and we're overstressed and we're living alone. And like, there's just so many things that I think we we don't talk about that contribute to mental health challenges. And instead, we just, you know, put people on medication and, you know, blame the individual when someone shoots up the school rather than talking about like all the systemic stuff that contributed to it. So I, I was feeling quite I am quite passionate about all of that, as you can probably tell. And I started a blog. And uh, somewhere during that time, I also visited New York City. And I when I came here, I was just like, I don't know how to explain this. I have to live here. I mean, it it didn't really make sense. I was born in a small town, British Columbia. I love nature. I love, you know, sports. I love space. I don't do well in crowds. And um, I've never been into really like art or like, like the kinds of things that New York City has to offer. But I just came here and I was like, I felt like so alive. And I felt like for the first time, no one was telling me I talk too fast or too much or any of that stuff. (laughs) And so, um, I just had this, like, I kind of just put it out there to the universe. I was like, I just, I want to be in New York, but I don't know how, cause I'm Canadian. And long story short, um, I ended up going to a conference, uh, because I had written an article for a publication that had gone viral and they invited me to this conference. And there I met, a bunch of people from New York and one of them said that they'd sponsor my visa. And so I basically flew home and told my boyfriend I was moving and quit my job and I moved to New York and I worked for a, uh, a very, a startup and it was a deeply uncomfortable experience on a number of levels, um, for about eight months. And then I kind of got to a point where I was like, all right, I've gotten, you know, had some real spiritual growth out of being in New York and not knowing a soul and it being very hard and in many different areas. Um, And then I kind of got this point where I was like, look, like the startup I was working for, we were like selling green juice to the 1%. And I was like, I did not come here to do that. You know, I came here to 
change the world and democratize wellness and mental health. And that's what I thought I was doing. And I definitely was not doing that. And um, I learned that way that every startup is quote unquote democratizing something and to actually understand how they're doing it rather than just listening to what they say. Um, And so I, I left and, you know, that was, that was about four years ago. And since then I've just, I kind of decided, I was like, look, like if I leave and I can't get a visa independently, I mean, it's not like I'm going back to Syria, I'm going back to Canada and, you know, I'll, I'm sure I'll be able to create a great life for myself in Vancouver, but I, uh, you know, I'm still here. I, I've started my own business and since then have just been doing like the coaching and, and therapy and, um, writing and speaking and it's, you know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm still here. <laughs> so, so it's, uh, that's kind of like, that was my journey and, really like I just continuously try to try to um, practice what I preach, you know, and put myself out of my comfort zone and practice compassion toward myself and others and try to, you know, be the best person that I can. And I'm definitely not perfect. And I'm definitely like have my moments of reactivity and my moments of, of, you know, jealousy and my moments of, um, you know, shouting proud or whatever it's called. Um, but for the most part, like I find that this is the, this is the place where I can do the most work, um, internally. And then also like externally for impact wise, at least that's what I tell myself. So that's sort of, that's why I'm where I am or my journey and how I got here. You know, the funny part is I know so many people that are listening, I'm sure here and larger and a much larger scale would look at you and see your level of success. And really, I mean, that's something we would all love to aspire to. So isn't it sort of funny how we always all have our eyes on that next level? Yeah, totally. And it's funny. I mean, I always people always it's like say that who people have followed my journey and whatnot. And I guess part of it is that, you know, it happens so so incrementally, like we don't necessarily notice the success. Um, and then also like some of it, I just think is like smoke and mirrors. I'm like, you know, I still, I'm still always like very, like every time I pay rent, I'm always like, Oh my God, you know, like it's not, I'm not like living some high life. Like I have a lot of, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate that I don't have any dependents. Right. So like I can put, you know, any additional income that I have toward like experiences, but you know, I'm not like, high role in here. And, and, you know, I, I don't have like, I don't have like this security that I probably would have if I were still at my college counseling job. But what I have now that I didn't have previously is I just have confidence and trust, you know, because I've, I've failed so many times or I've, I've been in so many places of discomfort that I know I can come back from it. And once again, tying it back to perfectionism, perfectionism will tell you that like, you are not resourced enough to be able to handle pain and heartbreak and failure and disappointment and all of those sorts of things. And it will try to convince you that you need to like, live your life in this rigid, um, safe way, because you can't, you can't come back from pain. And that's, that's not true. I mean, it's just, I mean, we are built to heal. Humans are so resilient, especially when we have support, you know, especially if you have connections. And if you don't, I mean, many of us don't. And so let that be the first place you start is like trying to learn how to connect. And therapy can be really good for that because you can recognize places where you're holding yourself back from connection out of probably very understandable protective mechanisms that came out of, you know, childhood attachments and stuff like that. Um, but ultimately, like, I now realize I'm like, okay, yeah, I mean, I don't know where I'll be in, in six months. I don't know what, like I'll be focusing on, you know, I've, I've made a, um, 
a concerted effort to cut back on clients recently so that I can put more energy into speaking and writing. And that's terrifying because I don't have as much income right now, you know? Um, but, but I know that, uh, it's, it's, it'll all work out. Like I just, I have like a deep trust because of, um, because of kind of like falling down and getting back up or whatever kind of cliche, um, analogy you want to use. So, so yes, I don't know if that really answered your question, but it was just a little, little rant for you. (laughs) Well, that's inspiring. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Where can people find you online, Megan? Um, you can find me. I mean, I think probably the most up to date stuff that I put up is like Instagram. I mean, I can't handle all the platforms. Um, so Instagram is uh, just Megan J. Bruno. It's M-E-G-A-N-J-B-R-U-N-E-A-U. And, you know, I, I mean, I write about stuff around like entrepreneurship and and mental health but also like you know body image and you know being in your 30s and single and dating in 2019 and I don't know I write about all sorts of stuff but at the end of the day it's really just coming back to learning how to like have a healthier relationship to ourselves and our emotions and our coping and stuff like that and um you know feel more connected and more aligned and more in touch with our intuition and whatnot. So Instagram is a great place to find me. Um, my website is just meganbruno.com. You can email me if you want to at Megan at meganbruno.com. Um, I'm also on like Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn. And I think those are kind of the main ones. So yeah, I'm, I'm all over the internet. You can find me pretty easily. And I would just like to recommend to anybody who's listening to go out and follow Megan particularly on her Instagram, of course, all platforms, but I really enjoy following your Instagram for some of the reasons I noted earlier. And it's just, you have an honesty in the way you portray yourself and a consistency in your message, no matter what particular topic you're talking about, if that makes any sense. You're just very uniquely yourself. And I really appreciate that as an Instagram follower. Oh, thank you, Brian. I appreciate that. I'm, I'm glad that you find it meaningful. And I've got one last question. This is deeply philosophical, or at least maybe partially philosophical, but I have a feeling you're going to have a good answer to this. If you could send a message to yourself, say 10 years ago, or you could throw in any number you want, if you could send a message to your past self, what would you tell the younger Megan? Ooh, it's it's, it's funny. I've been asked this before, and it's always tough for me because I'm so... um, I am so sort of like existential in my, uh, my own sort of life philosophies. Like I really do just believe like, you know, you can find meaning in everything and, and, you know, life is our teacher really. Right. Um, so I I wouldn't like want to change anything because I think that like, I would have needed to have some of those, like I I needed the life experiences that I had to, to have the knowledge that I have, but I mean, maybe it would be something around that, you know, just like life is your teacher, you know, just, um, whatever happens, whether it's, you know, you see it as, as good or bad or, or painful or pleasurable. Um, you know, I'm not sure if you're familiar with like the parable of the the old man and the horse, do you know that one? No, please. Okay. Okay. It's, it's a quick one. It's a quick one. So like, you know, there's, there's this, um, Chinese parable that is, is I always tell clients or I'll sometimes tell them podcasts and basically there's this, this old man and he lives with his son. He's, he's a, widower is that the right term widower versus widowed widower yeah yeah and um, he's a widower and he's uh you know they live on a farm and and they buy it next to a small village and they're very poor and you know they every day they bring in their crops or whatever to the village and sell them and that's how they survive and they have one horse and one day the horse runs away and everyone in the village is like oh no how terrible 
And the old man says, well, we'll see. And then the next day the horse comes back and it brings these two beautiful wild horses with it. And they're able to like break the horses in or whatever you call it. And, uh, and, uh, they now are, they can do double the work because they've got two, you know, well, they've got three horses, but you know, they have more horses to do the work and the villagers say like, Oh, how wonderful. And then the old man says, well, we'll see. And then the next day, um, the, the son, he, you know, he's like 15 or so or 16, he's out there and he's working on one of the, the broken horses and he, he gets bucked off and he breaks his leg and now he can't work. And so the villagers are all like, oh, no, how terrible, because, you know, he's obviously the one who's able to do more work. The old man isn't as agile. And the old man says, oh, we'll see. And then the next day there's a draft and, you know, the colonel like comes knocking on everyone's doors and is like, OK, anyone from the ages of 15 to 41 or whatever is, you know, has to go off to war. And um, then they but they spare him because they're like, well, you know, we, we obviously you obviously can't go to war. You have a broken leg. And, you know, all of the young like the boys who go off to war end up dying. And so he's he's spared and everyone says, oh, wonderful. And the, the man says, well, we'll see. And so this goes on and on and on. And I hope you can kind of see where it's going. But like ultimately, like nothing is good or bad. Like we assign value to life events based on our interpretation of them at the time. But I know for me, when I look back at my life and I look back at the most painful things that happen, you know, whether it was stuff in my childhood or, you know, my, like my, the heartbreak of 2011 that was like, took me years to get over or, you know, going through like, like experiencing the depths of eating disorders or, you know, moving to New York and being in so much pain and, you know, having really traumatic experiences here. Um, I look back at those now and I'm like, wow, like, this was the lesson that came from this, or I wouldn't have had this experience if it wasn't for that, or I wouldn't have met this person, or I wouldn't have gotten here, or, you know, this allowed me to, you know, for me not being able to get a job right off the bat out of my master's and then working at a yoga studio because it was the only way that I could do yoga and afford it was working there. Um, that allowed me to like write for a blog that then got discovered that then allowed me to write for the publication that, you know, ultimately got me to New York City, you know? So when we look back, and I think it's Steve Jobs who says we can only connect the dots backwards, um, we can find meaning and trust that like everything that happens will make sense at some point. And so I think if we just look at life as our teacher, you know, the painful moments being opportunities for awakening, as Pema Chodron says, opportunities for practicing mindfulness and self-compassion, but also as just being like part of the path that will lead us toward like a more fulfilled life at some point, so long as we keep staying awake. Um, we have less anxiety and less resentment and less um, uh, aversion to uh, discomfort, life's discomforts. And we can just be more accepting and like, okay, this is this, it is what it is right now, or, or nothing is good or bad. It just is. So, um, coming back to your question about advice for my younger self, I guess like on that, in that vein, I would just say, you know, everything that's happening, like it's, it's neither good nor bad, you know, just like befriend it, make space for it, observe it, you know, see what you can learn from it. Um, but like, it will all make sense at some point. And I still have that mentality, like, you know, in my daily life now. That's amazing. I've asked that question to a lot of people and I was right. That is the, definitely the most philosophical answer that I've received so far. <laughs> I'm glad I thought I could meet the expectation. Yeah, I'm a pretty, I'm a, for, 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 you know, for better or worse, I'm, I, I think a lot about this kind of stuff and have always been but, curious about that, you know, existentialism and social constructionism and Buddhism and all that sort of stuff. And you see it in my, uh, in my work. Well, definitely for the better because that, it was a great analogy and it makes perfect sense and I think it will help people. So I appreciate you sharing it. Oh, good. Well, thank you, Brian.
Oh, yes. Thank you so much for making the time. Um, I really appreciate it. And our audience is going to gain a lot from it. And uh, look forward to talking to you again in the future. Likewise. Thanks a lot. Take care. And that was Megan Bruno, everyone. I hope you got as much out of that episode as I did. Megan has so many powerful thoughts about dealing with emotions, about moving forward in our lives, and just being our best selves and having realistic expectations and not being a perfectionist. That one really hits home with me. Powerful message. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you for subscribing to the Lead with Impact podcast, listening to this episode, and just interacting with the show. I appreciate it so much. Uh, If you could take a moment to like, rate, review all those things on your favorite social media slash podcast directory, that would be greatly appreciated. And whatever you can do to interact with Lead with Impact and join us in this journey, I greatly appreciate it and it means the world to me. So that being said, I hope you go out, have a great day, lead with impact, and I will talk to you soon.